<clears throat> Father, for your word we are grateful. Because we realize that without hearing from you, we would have no hope. And yet of all the ways that you could have transferred knowledge and information to us, your method has been one that requires us to pause and slow down. To truly hear from you, we get to stop, study, listen, learn, think, and then to be changed. Lord, we all know we need to be changed. There's just no question. None of us want to be left where we are. But how we get there, how we get from where we are to where you want us to be, what motivates us now to what you want to have motivate us, the impact that we're having to the impact that we want to have. Lord, it, it comes through your word and we can't affect change in our lives from your word simply by hearing it. We need your spirit to work through your word that we would be different. And so we ask for that so that the world would be different. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Ryan pointed out, welcome to a historic moment in the life of our church. In almost 24 years, we have never, I guess, uh, spent this much time thinking as a church like our plans are going to be synced up with the kids. We hope this will serve some of you in particular, particularly those of you who, in leaving church, are asking your kids, what was children's ministry about? Guess what? You don't have to ask that question anymore. You now saw the video along with all of its uh, appropriate sound effects, especially the one of Jesus going up into heaven, which I got to admit, I hope had that sound effect because that just seems kind of appropriate. Um, but more than us simply trying to serve a segment of our, um, of our church, I do think there's benefit for us in being in the same word together, being directed from the Lord through the same means together over an extended period of time. And so for these next three months, we're going to be in Acts 1 through 8. The plan is to take some time off, especially because we would like you guys to be with us when we finish the book of Acts. So even though you'll be leaving uh, many of you in the beginning of May, don't worry, we're going to wait and we'll jump back into Acts 9 when you're back with us so that we can do this together in the fall. And we've got some good things prepared for you over the summer, so don't worry, we're there. But there's one question that is at the center of this, uh, this text in particular, verses 1 through 11, that I think we all resonate with, even though it's a question we would never probably ask in its most literal sense. And that question is this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? going to guess, this is just a wild guess, that in all the questions you have asked the Lord and all the burdens you've brought to him in prayer, probably going to guess this hasn't been among your top 5, 10, 25, 105 requests. Lord, are you going to make Israel the nation of supremacy on the earth once again? Is that, maybe that is your burden. But I'm going to guess that across the course of our lives, this has not been one of the most significant things we've felt. But 
I am sure that we can relate to the underlying energy of this request. Because for a nation of people living in a land promised to their ancestor long ago, but for centuries dominated by other empires, many of whom, all of whom really had absolutely no touch point to righteousness, no history of the promises of God, no claim to this land. And yet in the day that the disciples are thinking of this, having everything that just happened that Luke wrote to dear Theophilus, and we'll do an introduction on that in just a second. But in all of that, at this moment, this is a concern for the disciples because of the same reasons that we have our kind of concerns. We know that the world is broken. We know that the poor are oppressed. We know that the evil seem to be uh, sort of taking over the, the land, the, the territory that God had granted to righteous people. And it doesn't make sense. The good news is, since we've spent some time studying the book of Job a while back, we recognize that in one of the most ancient books of the Bible and in one of the most recent books of the Bible in the book of Revelation, that burden of, Lord, when are you going to write things on the planet? Because we feel the brokenness of the planet. That's been a burden that across the days has always uh, consumed the prayers of the people of God. What they're asking for is, Lord, when will you fulfill your promises so that evil isn't winning anymore? In this case, it's the Romans. But for us, we have so many other ways. Some of them can be personal. Lord, when, when will I stop feeling so inferior around her? Because she just takes every opportunity she has to belittle me. When are you going to put an end to that? Lord, I feel like I'm just getting picked on all the time. When are, when are you going to put an end to that? But there was a time in America's history that we might have thought that your kingdom was coming in some ways in lock sync step with the progress of our country. But it sure doesn't feel that way anymore. When are you going to put a stop to this deterioration we see in our world? Lord, we just keep getting report after report of Christians being killed. When are you going to put a stop to the persecution of your people? This burden that dominates the disciples is the burden that ought to dominate every prayer, really. Lord, when will you bring your kingdom to the earth? And so we have that same question, not necessarily about Roman oppression, but we are eager to know when is God going to continue his work and finish his work on the earth? This is... A big part of why we're diving into the book of Acts. It's not just that we thought we'd really like to sync up with the kids for a while. And this is a great way to do it. That was part of it. But we haven't really deeply studied the book of Acts in the course of our church. That's largely been because kind of like the book of Galatians. When I first arrived here at the church and I was asking, what are the books that you guys have gone through that shaped you guys over your first, you know, five, six, seven years here? It was the book of Acts and the book of Galatians that really seemed to make a difference to a lot of the folks. And I thought, well, those are off limits then for a while. 
In the meantime, you know, we did the book of Romans, which I was terrified of, the book of Revelation, which we got to revisit at some point, if we're honest, because I think we preached Revelation in five different locations. And so that's, that's one that it feels like we might not have picked up on everything. And given the fact that I was also studying the book while preaching it, we, we maybe do a revisit. But Acts was one of those that for me for a while felt like it was, it was deep in the psyche of our church. And I, I think that the, the expiration date on that warning label has, has since expired, come and gone. And so here we are. We're going to dive in and ask questions. And this is one of those books that I I want us to remember over and over and over. That we are reading a story of something that happened. We're reading history. But we're reading Luke's account of that history for a man named Theophilus. And under the assumption that Theophilus would be distributing this to the church and to his sphere. This is a... First century document written in a different language to a different people recording what happened in that story. But the telling of a story is always meant to influence the hearers of the story. And it's that balance that we're going to have to hold on to the whole time. So easy to read what happens in the book of Acts and say, that's what we should be doing today. And it might be true. It might be true in a nuanced way. And it might not be true. We know that every story that's repeated in the Bible isn't necessarily there for our imitation, right? There's tons of the Old Testament we would never want anyone to imitate. But when you've got a story of positive things going on, generally speaking, you have to ask the question, if anybody steals from the offering plate here at Trinity Church, will we be burying you in the backyard after the service? Because that's going to show up in this book. Should we imitate everything given here? It's the question commentators have asked about the book of Acts, whether or not it is simply descriptive or whether it is prescriptive. Meaning, does it describe events that took place or does it just prescribe behavior that ought to be imitated from those events that took place? They're very good questions. The second thing to remember about this, and for those of you who went through the study on Wednesday in community group, you already got a sense of this, but Luke and Acts are a two-part story that Luke alludes to in the very beginning when he says, hey, in the first part of this, in the first book of this, I told you everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. That means that what is going to happen in the second book is going to highlight what Jesus continued to teach. What Jesus continued to do. And so, as we've often thought of this, the the traditional title of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. The problem with that is that all the different apostles change. And as the Bible Project folks kind of point out in their their background video on the book of Acts, there really is one consistent character all the way through the book of Acts. And that is the presence of Jesus through the work of the Spirit. And so what we're thinking about the book of Acts is that this is the acts of Jesus and the Spirit through the apostles, to be sure. But there's also more than just title work that's important for us to think about with this book. It's more than just authorship, recognizing that Luke wrote Acts and Luke wrote uh, Luke. 
But it's also a structural thing that's really significant whenever we realize a, a marker that's given in this book. And we're going to get to that as well. But the, the basic structure of Luke and of Acts challenges us who read everything chronologically. Meaning this chapter happens before this chapter. Generally speaking, that's true. But not everything in scripture is structured just by way of time. And Luke is a really good example of that. Luke structures both his gospel, part one, and the acts of Jesus and the Spirit, part two, less chronologically and more geographically. In the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we have all these references to the Roman Empire, the Gentile world. And so in the beginning, you hear of different censuses that happen or you different decrees that take place. It's as though Luke is saying in the very, very beginning, I want you to be very aware of the Gentiles in which we live, the Roman world in which we live. Interestingly enough, when you come to the very end of the book of Acts, what you see as the geographic focus is the work of Paul in getting the gospel to that Gentile world or as we hear in this text, the ends of the earth. If you were to track that geological, geographical progression in the book of Luke, and you saw that he kind of moves from what's happening in the Gentile world that, that directs how Jesus is born and how his ministry begins. And where you see him after that is in Judea and Samaria. That's where Jesus' ministry in the in the book of Luke really begins. And that geographic focus has him moving from Galilee through Samaria to Judea. And at the end, clearly to Jerusalem and to the temple and to the cross. So the geographic focus spreads from the ends of the earth to Jerusalem through Galilee, Samaria, Judea. That's the way that the book is structured. Interestingly enough, all of that flips around as the same disciples gathered there in Jerusalem meeting Jesus and then deployed by Jesus to stay there be empowered there and spread from there will go from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and then to the rest of the ends of the earth in other words within verses 1 through 11 is a reference to the geographical structure, not just of the book of Acts, as we're going to see it spread out, but actually to the literary genius and brilliance of Luke as he puts this entire work together. And you recognize, oh, part one and part two really do fit together in what's been called a chiastic structure. We've talked about it often as a sandwich, where things that are bookended focus you in the middle. And there is one historical marker in the middle of this and that is the, can't do the sound effect exactly right, the ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus has for me over these last couple weeks of, as I've thought about and studied this, taken on much more theological importance. If I were honest, a few months ago, really before I started thinking about this book, I would have often thought about the ascension as the way that Jesus is just taken from the earth. He said, it's not better for me to be here. You guys need the Holy Spirit. But two of us, you know, this thing big enough for the both of us. So I have to get out of there so he can get here. I haven't thought about the ascension Jesus simply as Jesus leaving 
not about Jesus going. But all the Old Testament markers that point to the ascension are actually about the significance, not of just where Jesus is leaving, but where Jesus is going. Because throughout the entire Old Testament, there is one who sits on the throne. The invisible one who sits on the throne. The sovereign God of creation who sits on the throne. And mankind, human beings, are one of the created ones. And they are to exist maybe before the throne. But the concept that a human being would sit on the throne is ludicrous. Until the ascension. It is through the ascension of Jesus Christ that the whole purpose of his incarnation is brought to bear. The kingship of Jesus takes full effect through the ascension. And that's what we're going to see and understand the importance of. And hopefully not move on too quickly from. Because the rest of the book of Acts having fulfilled what Luke was pointing to in the very beginning, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the rest of the book of Acts is what happens once he is ascended, once he's enthroned, and once he continues to work from the point of deploying his wishes and mission from the throne. So hopefully you can see just in that little summary, the reason that this is kind of taken on a little bit more significance for me as I've understood this. Hopefully, I'm not rushing ahead of you too much, but in case I am, let's back up. Let's walk through this passage a little bit together. In your bulletins, we have four points. Um, we got five on the slides because I needed a little bit, uh, a little bit more help. So, let's look again. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. In other words, first thing we see is Jesus' ongoing work on the earth. A simple reference to the fact that Jesus Christ, enthroned in heaven at this present point, was actually a human being on the earth. Jesus Christ, enthroned in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, was one of us and not only was one of us, but is one of us. The one reigning and deploying his mission on the earth is a human being. He was on the earth as one of us. Think of the way that if we were to Understand the significance of that. It would change the way that we read so much of the story of the Old Testament. I don't have slides for this, but listen to Psalms chapter 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water and ye which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither and all he does, he prospers. You've heard this psalm before. You're familiar with this psalm before. 
What is the primary point of this psalm? It's how you get blessed, right? Are you the one? Are you the one who is blessed because you don't stand in the wrong spots, sit in the wrong spots, walk in the wrong ways? You don't scoff. You don't mock. Your delight is in the law of the Lord. How many of you have read this and felt, well, that reaffirms every one of my motives and everything I've done this last week? Not me. I read Psalm 1. Verses 1 through 3, and part of me feels like, boy, can any of us be blessed? If we read the Old Testament story and we ask, which is the blessed one that God is telling the story of? You might think, oh, it was going to be Noah, but then he's naked and needing to be covered up in his tent. Oh, it's going to be Abraham who lies and his kids lie and these guys lie. And God keeps blessing and making covenants with all these lying cowards. And you realize those aren't the blessed ones. Well, maybe we need a king because the whole time of judges, I mean, it wasn't Moses, it wasn't Joshua, it wasn't anything during the slave. We really need someone to rule over us and it wasn't going to be Saul. It's David. David is the one. I mean, maybe David even penned this and David's writing an autobiographical account of how blessed he is until you realize like, wow, David's a murderer. David's got bloody hands. David actually penned something that was more like, um, I am so unblessed. The only way that I could be blessed is not because of what I delighted in. Not because of the way that I stood and walked and sat on the earth. It's only if you just take all that away. The whole Old Testament, just like all of our autobiographical accounts, could very easily be summed up in the way that we don't fulfill that verse. We're not the blessed ones. We need a blessed one to come. We need a human being to arrive on the earth who's actually going to walk and stand and sit the right way. Who's actually going to delight in the right stuff. And Luke is saying he came. He, he actually came on the earth. And all that he began to do and teach is what I covered in the first book. Please read me a chapter from Luke and show me how Jesus didn't live up to those three verses. Can we imitate can we follow? Yeah, we can try. Will we ever be the second coming of his story? No, we will not. There's much to learn from Psalm 1. But praise God, it was fulfilled by someone who came. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Well, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and flash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. What do chapters one and do to put together? Here's, here's the way to be blessed. Not one of us walked it. Here's the context of what's taken place in a whole mess of people that gathered together into nations. All those who failed to live up to chapter 1 have actually rallied together to revolt against God. And God has said, don't worry, I'll take care of that too by sending my king. 
And so the way you're oriented towards this one is more significant than anything. So Jesus' ongoing work was done on the earth, to be sure. It's why we read in the very beginning from Luke chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. But isn't it amazing the way that when we studied Luke, if you remember, and you were with us a long while ago, Luke says, the reason I want you, Theophilus, to understand more about Jesus is so that you can be clear, so that you can have faith, so that you can believe things. And then all the people in the story that he starts telling, especially as Jesus is coming along, that you would expect would believe things, aren't the people who ought to believe. Well, they all ought to believe, but none of them do. It's the unexpected. It's the poor. It's the peasants. It's all those that are being raised up. They're the ones who have faith. They're the ones who hear God and believe. So Zechariah is contrasted with Mary. And you have this sense that the priest is mute and Mary gets to sing. Because those who hear God and believe are the ones that are blessed. The way we get to take up our part in the story of Psalm chapter 1 is to hear and be blessed. And so Luke is adding his account almost to what we're called to delight in. Listen to all this story. And just like God made promises and promises and promises in the past, and our job is to hear those promises, believe them, and be blessed through it, to take delight in it. I'm telling you another story of another one. He's the one in whom I want you to delight as well. But more than that, Verse 3 says, back in Acts 1, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke is pointing back to something else that he wrote at the end of his story in Luke chapter 24. It says, and they, um, those they are the ones who were with him on the road to Emmaus. They after Jesus had been with them, found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I appreciate that account in Luke because it gives us a sense of what Luke is talking about here in the book of Acts. That was just one moment that after Jesus had been killed, and after Jesus had been buried, and after the disciples had mourned because they thought the whole story was over and the kingdom was lost to the Romans because the Romans had finally defeated Jesus, put him out of his misery, and brought misery to them because now there's just no hope except for then Jesus came back to life. And then Jesus appeared, and he appeared to them and spoke to them. Many, many proofs of him being alive in verse 3. And so when Jesus was on the earth, it wasn't just that he taught. It wasn't just that he healed. And it wasn't just that he died. It was that having died for people, he then rose for them as well. So that he could now, as the risen, exalted, and enthroned one, continue the work that he began in this other book. This is where this book starts for us. 
This isn't just a sort of commentary on the book of Luke, where Luke is writing and saying, there's a man, Abraham Lincoln. He was a good man. He suffered many political defeats early in his life and then came to a place where he was over the union. And then when that union was challenged, oh, the courage that he showed. Look at the way that his life kind of led to that point. Now, let's sort of see if we can draw some lessons from the life of a historical figure. That is not what the book of Acts is. The book of Acts is not a commentary on how people lived because they were impressed by somebody. That's not what we're going to be reading. What we're going to be reading is the ongoing work of the Son of God, the Son of Man, enthroned in the heavens, who continues to do what he wants to see done on the earth. That is a totally different way of us remembering it, because if we believe Jesus came to the earth and was active on the earth, he is working on the earth from the place of his enthronement through his Spirit. That is the way we are going to spend our time looking at the rest of this book. It will be the acts and the ongoing work of Jesus. So if we begin with Jesus' ongoing work on the earth, then we're dealing with Jesus' ongoing work in the ascension, our second point. Look back at verse 3. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, let's just be honest. The preposition is the thing that throws us in this. Because if we think about an ascension, it's a spatial word. When he was taken up is, an, is a spatial preposition. Jesus was taken from here up there. But if we're honest, that's really dissatisfying, isn't it? When the Russians finally made it into space, the atheistic powers that were there declared that God did not exist because the Russians had made it to space and they didn't see him. They went up as far as we could go up. And if Jesus was taken up, if he was ascended from here where he descended, and if the bulk of what that means is just spatial, physical, material, then we're stuck. And these are moments that we have to recognize the way that God has chosen to reveal things to us through his word. He uses words speaking to us in ways that we can understand. And yet that don't always portray exactly what he's getting at. It's not as though he's just done that with words. He's done that with all of creation. There's a nature of who God is that is light and not dark. And we are just beginning to be capable because we and all of our genius have created a camera that could unfold out in space and that can look at the way that God made light in the heavens. And we can be impressed by how big it is and how powerful it is and how shiny it is. And we can realize what God did physically to make light that reflects his nature. That was one thing he did. You ever thought about why people get together and couple up on the planet? Paul told us. He built that into the very DNA and the fabric of how human beings relate. Because it pictured as husband and wife his relationship with us. 
There have been eternal realities in the wise plan of God that in order to be able to communicate mind-blowing things to us, he built into the very way that we exist. We need light. But God didn't just use that and say, what am I like? Oh, that's right. You need light. So let me just kind of use that. You need to depend on me. Oh, gosh, what could I use to just kind of think about? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, bread. You know the way you need bread? That, that, that's, that's, that's a real thing. And I'm kind of like that. It, no, it's actually t- entirely the opposite. You want to know me? I'm going to build marriage and sustenance and sleep and light into your very existence so that these things can be metaphors of the greater reality of who I am. And in some ways, we have to recognize that sometimes even words in the Bible work that way. When those who step into the presence of God are trying to describe the glory of God, particularly the prophets who were there, they use the word like and as a ton. It was like fire. It was as lightning. It was like melted lava. And guys, I just, I'm, I'm fumbling over my words because my words aren't doing a good job. They're the accurate words. They're the inspired words, but they are limited words. And I think up is one of those words. I think the word ascended is one of those words. It's a spatial word. But I think we're all very aware if we thought about the nature of what happens to Jesus, right? That what we're talking about is not some sort of a rocket blast where Jesus is taken up, though physically it would appear that that's what physically happened to his body. But that at some point in ascending to the clouds, it wasn't as though Jesus kind of hit a rocket boost and went further out into the universe than, you know, we've been able to explore. But if we ever could, we could get there. I, th- I think we're very aware that Jesus' ongoing work following his ascension is the fulfillment of a passage in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 68, verses 17 to 18. The chariots of God are thousands upon thousands You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Even there, before the ascension of Jesus, the psalmist is pointing out the fact that God is up and we are down. And and that as the exalted one, as the lifted up one, he is enthroned and able like a, uh, a general who comes in and conquers and then in returning from his victory, deploys the goods to people. Paul uses, in fact, this to be able to talk about what Jesus is doing on the earth today. You might have recognized that. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, describing Jesus and what Jesus is doing through the church, uses exactly this language. He says, but... Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and he quotes Psalm 68 that I just quoted for you, and then uses that same language. And he, Jesus, who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul doubles down on the space wordage, the temporal kind of language That Jesus is going to fill all things. What? 
implies something that would be very difficult literally for Jesus in a human body to do. He, taking up residence in one human form, is not going to be like some sort of gas emanating out from his body that then sort of disperses itself. Into a, do you see the limitations of the language that we're using? But recognize this. Don't make the same mistake that so many people have made. That the real thing is bread. And that Jesus is just sort of like it. Jesus, in fact, said the exact opposite to people whenever he had fed the 5,000. You're here for bread, like manna from heaven. But you've got to understand, God has given you actually something more real. My flesh is real food. Your bread is just a picture of it. In the same way, if we kind of use that same energy... Paul and the psalmist and Luke are using language of the fact that Jesus has left us down here to be ascended to there. What he's talking about is real, even though it, the idea of him ascending really does transcend what we can think about or speak about just in our material way. But that doesn't make it less real. In fact, in the most real way, Jesus is enthroned in heaven because of his ascension. And look what he is able to do. Look back at verse 3. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. Look at the energy in verse 4. Same way. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Very deliberate choice of words from Luke, isn't it? Jesus is not speaking as some buddy-buddy teacher, like some 20-year-old trying to figure out how to make his way among the middle school classes, terrified of them, losing his train of thought and, and you know, speaking in front of them and talking and being so nervous and trying to figure it out and losing his train of thought and then realizing, oh my goodness, this kid over here is not paying attention. And so just asking, what was the last thing that I said? And then the kid says, I don't know. And he says, oh, well then pay attention. Could somebody else tell me what I just said? And that other person over there tells you what you just said. And you're like, thank you very much. That's really helpful. And then armed with his train of thought, he goes back and forth because he's so terrified of these kids. I taught for about 10 years and I lived that story out so many times. That's, that's not Jesus. He's not coming with some declared authority by his father, terrified and timid, trying to figure out how to be able to do this, kind of a little new on the job. And so everybody's like, hey, just give Jesus a little time. He's the rookie king, you know, under new management. He's trying things out. And so he's, he's just making some suggestions. These are not suggestions. What we're about to read, what we're about to hear, what's about to unfold before us is under the, the guise of what Luke calls commands and orders. I have made my way from the declarations of the ends of the earth to Jerusalem to accomplish what I wanted to do. I'm going to leave. Here's my command. You will stay. Because I have work to do. But I am ordering you not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. 
And that promise of the Father moves us into our third point. It's not just Jesus' ongoing work on the earth. It's not just Jesus' ongoing work following his ascension. It's Jesus' ongoing work by the Spirit. His promise of the Father, if you didn't read part one, is exactly what he's referring to from part one. He says in verse four, wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is Jesus referencing something John the Baptist had even said. Early on, when John the Baptist had all of his followers, before Jesus had done everything that he did, before Jesus had conquered the way that he did, and before Jesus was officially kind of enthroned through the ascension the way that he was, John still saw something different in Jesus. John said to those who were around him, um, a lamb, a, a fire baptizer. Me? I'm a guy who dabbles in water. I just help people repent and I'm just preparing a way. But him. I would be honored to be the lowest of the slaves of the servants of him. I'm not even worthy to the most menial of tasks for him. And Jesus references John's words that John would baptize with water, but Jesus would be the one who would baptize with water and with fire. We're going to pause on the word fire and we're going to punt that down because we're going to get to that one. And I don't want to steal all the thunder from it. But we can at least tease it out in a couple ways. Fire certainly is an odd word that in some cases in the Old Testament talks about destruction. And in some cases talks about glory. So chew on that for a little bit. We'll get to Acts chapter 2 in a little while. But in the meantime, back to this. This is Jesus through the Spirit saying, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And here were Jesus' words in Luke chapter 24 that Luke is referring back to. The Christ will suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. When that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. And this promise of the Father, this baptism that Luke is now kind of quoting from Jesus, is going to empower them. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There's so much to say. But let's at least recognize the way that Luke is beginning to get us ready for Acts chapter 2 by saying this. This was not plan B or C. It wasn't as though the ideal would have been for Jesus to have been received on the earth. Enthroned on the earth. And then ruling at this point from the earth. It wasn't, oh golly the cross happened. What am I going to do? Yeah. Rats. No, the promise of the Father was plan A to deploy the Spirit for power for the disciples on the earth. Because Jesus' ongoing work wasn't just going to happen on the earth or following his ascension or be by the Spirit, it was going to be through his witnesses. Look at verse 6. So, 
When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the question we looked at in the very beginning. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority. But, referring back to what he had said in Luke, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. That language of witnesses was what you heard in those Old Testament texts that Sarah was reading for us. God has declared so many times, not just that he needs to do something on the earth, but that witnesses are important for the deploying of what he's done on the earth. In fact, in a text when, when I saw that the that the, uh, the, the children's ministry materials wanted to take an entire week and focus on the replacement of Judas with Matthias? I thought, what are they doing? Are you guys just trying to fill time? But then in looking ahead to it, I realized, no, 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 no. There is a link between witnessing something and have power for what God is wanting to do on the earth. This changes everything if we think about what God has called us to be. Are we to follow and imitate Jesus? Absolutely. Are we to be good? Guys, I'll talk to you for a minute. Are we to be good in some cases for you, husbands and fathers? Absolutely. And as a good husband or father, do you then inherit the call from God to talk about how good of a husband and a father you are. Are you deployed by God, given the mission from God to declare how you are a great example for God and that other people should follow your example for God? Yes, with a massive asterisk. Yes, in the sense that Paul could say, hey, I'm following Jesus, you could follow me as we do that. But the massive asterisk is that Paul's not at the head of that line. The massive asterisk is that no husband was ever called to tell his own story of how great he is as a husband, rally other men around and say, this is how great I am as a husband and as a father. Be just like me because my story is the thing that matters. No. Faithful dads, faithful husbands are faithful witnesses first and foremost. We don't tell our story. We tell his story. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And then Luke gives us the rest of the structure for his book. Having seen it take place in Luke, in Acts, we're going to see how it's going to be deployed. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And you'll be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria. And you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, here's what's tricky for me about that. It's the word and. Because I think there's some of us who really like the idea of having a global platform as a witness. If I have to fight against anything as a preacher, it's wanting to 
preach the message that goes viral and makes it out there on the internet. Everybody goes, wow, have you heard Darren's message? And it gains worldwide fame and, and nations come to Jesus because I preached the see my shells message. I don't think I'm alone as a preacher. It's, it's what we fight. We're called to be a faithful witness. And there's a certain sense that Maybe you wouldn't relate to this, but I think most of us who do this kind of have that sense of, I'd love it if my message goes out to the ends of the earth. And somehow it's, it's Jesus' message delivered by Darren. But maybe some of you would say, like, actually, I'm not as excited about that. I just have this family member who lives in my Jerusalem, and I've been trying to share the gospel with them, and it's just been so hard. Those kinds of things terrify me a little bit more than the ends of the earth. Or maybe it's the Jerusalem and Samaria kind of relationships. Not the great strangers out there, but it's the folks that you kind of rub shoulders with. The people you're sort of familiar with. Luke's point is not metaphorical. I'm certainly talking about it for us that way. Luke's point was entirely geographic. What is going to happen in the story of where the gospel goes is it's going to be the bomb that blows up in Jerusalem and has these waves and the epicenter is going to be there, but it is going to continue all the way out to the ends of the earth. That's the way the gospel is. It is the most effectively contagious viral message ever. And it's been doing amazing work to the ends of the earth for thousands of years. But what gets me is the ends. If I'm really going to be on board with the power of Jesus, then I need to be equally passionate about how God is working in those closest to me and in those that are a step or two out from me and those with whom if, they, if change came into their lives, it wouldn't benefit me at all because they're all the way out at the ends of the earth and I'd, just, I'd be doing good for their sake but getting no relational benefit from it. It's the ands that throw me. But it's also the ands that inspire me. Because it's one thing to see something happen, some change for us. I lost 40 pounds by eating chicken breast. I gained 20 pounds back by failing to continue to do that. But if I told you the story of those 40 pounds and I was just telling you, hey, this is the way it worked for me, most of the time, I'd probably have to say that that might not work for you. But maybe this is a little piece of advice that'll just work for you or for me. Or if there was a group of people, and we gathered a little online forum called the Chicken Breast Eaters, right? And we just had our little ways and we tracked how much weight we were losing, right? Sometimes I think we can treat the gospel that way. It's kind of worked for me. This might work for you. I don't know. Maybe there might be some other people for whom knowing Jesus kind of works, that's not the way that the gospel is being presented here. It is going to work in Jerusalem and it will work in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is one solution applied everywhere. And it doesn't matter how close you are or how far you are. Being a witness of what Jesus has done and is doing in the world is the only thing that we are given power for because it's the only powerful message 
across the board. The last bit that we hit then in Luke 9 is the last point. It's Jesus' ongoing work, not just on the earth, not just following his ascension, not just by his spirit, not just through his witnesses, but it's until he returns. Because that's what the witnesses from heaven declare. When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, given the fact that I've preached a little bit longer than I would normally preach, eh, that's not true. Sometimes I really preach long messages. Let's just recognize this. There will come a day when this work is done. There will come a day when Jesus returns. There will come a day, not simply when Jesus is going to send the work to be done, sort of fighting an endless battle and the yin and yang struggle of good versus evil, the gospel versus the spread of, of whatever you want to fill in the blank for. There will come a day that we wait for, we work until, and Jesus was abundantly clear. When we spent our time in Mark and we looked at one of the prophecies Jesus made, Jesus had stood in the midst of the temple and said, this thing's going down. And within the life cycle of those there, it came down. He was not joking about his capacity to say what was going to happen into the future. And here, a similar proclamation is made. Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Paul references this burden and tells us then the following. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables us even to subject all things to himself. The danger right now for me is to preach every message that the book of Acts is set up here to preach to us over the next three, four months. The danger right now is to drop into every application point. And so resisting that, let me just challenge you with this. Will your tendency be to read this book only as descriptive? Will you find safety in that? Approaching this book, be, being able to hold it like radioactive material far enough away from you, like when cell phones first came out, everybody was worried, like, how far? What's the, what's the danger before this thing affects me? Will you hold the book that way? Will you read it as what God did back then? This is only descriptive, but I, it's got to stay far enough from me that I can't be affected by the same power, the same commands, the same king. Or will you bring this book close as we study this? Will we be able to appreciate the history it reflects and the present reality? It implies. 
I think that is going to make all the difference. Because we could come away from this book at the end of the year, approaching Christmas, at the end of our time, having studied and become scholars and amazed at how things, but we've put up the radioactive shield so that it doesn't affect us at all. And I don't think that will please God. But if we enter into this history and we appreciate his authority, then I think everything could change. So let me pray to us, pray for us to that end. I can pray to you. Father, what we're about to encounter, what we're about to unpack is bold and, and, and daunting. If we've read the introduction to this the right way, then we, we believe we're, we're, we're listening for and looking into how you have been and will continue to be at work in the world. Lord, we pray that these founding documents, these descriptions of what you did in the beginning of your people deployed on the earth through your spirit. Lord, we, we pray that this would inspire us and transform us. But Lord, we, re we recognize the parts where we'll want to hold your word at an arm's length. We recognize the ways that we're going to want to keep distance from this so it doesn't get us. And I pray that you would draw us closer to your word through our time in studying it. May we see. May we be sobered and may we be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together. I don't know how you guys doing on time. I preached for a long time, but we still want to